Go ahead and turn in your Bible to uh, Matthew chapter 8. And uh, while you do, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and we'll pray one more time. Father, um, we, we're coming to you tonight. And uh, Lord, I just ask that tonight you would be glorified in everything that we say and everything we do and the way we take it. Father, I know that um, I've been con- I know I'm convicted uh, about this, Lord. I pray that we all will be. Father, I'm ask- I feel kind of undone about this, Lord. There's, there's, uh, you know, you know, there, there's, there's, there's so much heaviness on my heart, Father God, and I'm sure on other people's hearts. And, and uh, Lord, it's, it's uh, easy to be distracted sometimes. But I'm asking you right now, give us grace, Father. Give us grace to, to just, you know, do what we should do. Give us grace to give you the attention we should give you. What we're going to talk about tonight, Father God, is from your Word, and that makes it important because you said it, Lord. It matters to you, so it should matter to, to me. It should matter to all of us. And I'm asking you tonight, please give us grace to uh, focus on what you're saying. Give us hearts, Father, that that we can't conjure up for ourselves. Give us hearts that are open and and tender to what you're saying, Lord. Please break down any defenses that we set up against your truth in our own in our own lives, Lord. Uh, I'm asking you right now, Father God, help me preach this the way you want it to be preached. And I pray that it will be received the way you want it to be received. Holy Spirit, would you please minister this to all of us, including me, uh, from the pulpit. And I pray, Father, that our lives will be changed because we need lives that are changed, Lord. We don't need lives that are the same. We need lives that are different, God. Uh, we love you and we praise you and Jesus uh, we just want to give you everything that you deserve tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, tonight, as we continue through Matthew chapter 8, we're giving a look at uh, what Jesus' expectations are from and for his people. One thing is, that we're going to see is we're going to see what Jesus' expectations are from and for his people. And I hope that we're going to recognize the necessity of discipleship in the life of every single believer. Not just some believers, all believers. And also, as we, as we go through what we're going to talk about tonight, Matthew grants us a look into Jesus' dedication for his disciples. So, if you remember, when we last looked at Matthew's gospel, we saw that Jesus uh, had not only healed Peter's mother-in-law, but he had also uh, healed all the demonized and the sick that were brought to him. And... While we will discuss such exorcisms later, that's not really our topic for tonight. For now, we should just suffice to say that these miracles that Jesus performed, they caused quite a stir in that region. All of a sudden, you know, someone who spoke as no man before had ever spoken, someone who spoke with power, and and the way he talked distinguished him from the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the day. Now all of a sudden he's showing up and he's doing miracles that no one had ever done before, especially in the lives of the people here. It had not only been over 400 years since God had spoken through an audible voice, through man, to his people. It had been a much longer time since God had done miracles in the eyes of Israel. And now all of a sudden Jesus shows up and He's doing these miracles and it gathers people's attention. In fact, according to Mark's account, uh, the morning after He had performed these miracles, while Jesus isolated Himself to go and pray, uh, His disciples came after Him saying to Him, Everyone is looking for you. So these Miracles that he's performed has gathered everybody's attention. He is the topic of the day. He is the his name is on everyone's lips, and that's where we pick up uh, in the 18th verse of Matthew chapter eight. It says, "Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side." Like we said, word had spread quickly. And if you look at the other synoptic gospels, you'll see that the night before, the entire town had gathered around the door of the house in which Jesus was staying. Everyone was looking for Jesus because of the miracles he was working. And here we see that, of course, they had found him. Now, as a side note, uh, it's not wrong to be attracted to Jesus because of his miracles or his abilities. If you say it is, I would pose the question, who would not be attracted to such miracles? If somebody walked by and said, hey, you got any dead people laying around? And you took them to the city morgue and he just spoke and they all got up. We all would be somewhat taken aback, correct? None of us are so stoic 
that we would not be impressed with that and we would not uh, research this guy further. So we, we shouldn't say, uh, I, I think sometimes we can kind of write that off and we get so uh, rigorous about seeking Christ for the, the, what, you know, the right way or for the right motivation that sometimes we forget, well, these are people. And they saw miraculous things, and of course they came looking for Jesus because of these miraculous things. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is when the miracles or the prestige uh, become the whole focus of our seeking. The, the reason this is a problem is because when people stop simply at focusing on the miracles and the signs and the wonders of Christ, they fail to recognize the entirety of who Christ Jesus really is. They fail to see the forest that is Jesus for gazing only at one or two of the trees. And this often means that they fail to see Jesus as Lord. Um, they may see Him as miracle worker. They may see Him as healer. They may see Him as teacher. They may even see Him as Savior. But they only see Him as the one who can give them what they carnally want and not as the only one who can heal their true problem of sin. It's easy to do that when we stop short at looking at only the things that initially impress us about Christ. We all, at first, when we all came to Christ, we all at first came to Jesus in imperfect ways and with some very imperfect motives. I think if we all looked at our own experience, I don't think any of us probably have. You know, the Bible doesn't give us uh, a line-for-line line outline and say this is the perfect salvation experience. I assume, it, I, I say in one way, everybody that gets saved had a perfect experience because God's the one who worked that in your life. So in one way it's perfect, but at the same time, we can all find flaws and things that we would like to change about all of our experiences. I know I can't. Okay. Um, sometimes if we look at it, it could be very complicated to backtrack your experience with how Christ broke in on your life and changed your life. However, people who only care about what Jesus can do for them and never about what they owe Him, they're only fair-weather followers. When the flashy and the flamboyant has cooled off and the cost of following Jesus becomes real... They're not going to stick it out because it was never about abandonment of self with them. And that's one of the main themes that Christ is always going to point to as he calls people to come and follow him. Um, these people that we're talking about, the fair weather followers, they never saw that they were wretched or miserable or lost and in need of a savior, truly. They never felt that they needed one greater than themselves to take ownership of every single part of their life because all they could ever do is steer their ship into utter destruction. They never put their ear on the doorpost and begged the master to pierce it through with his awl, making them his they're making him making themselves, excuse me, his bond slave. Therefore, when the going gets tough, these people will always fall away from truly following and decide to settle for one of two things. Either hollow religion and or false representations of divine power. And the problem with um, the church, especially in America, but I think all over the world probably to some degree, is that there are so many that fall into that context. If it's, easy to, if it's too easy to come to Christ, it's very easy to leave Christ. And when it's too easy to come to Christ, or when it seems like the cost is nothing to come to Christ, then all of a sudden when costs start showing up, then all of a sudden, because we have nothing invested, we, we take ourselves out of the scenario and there's no skin off our back. And that happens to so many people. But the problem is that we won't, uh, we won't just completely officially part with the faith. What do we do? We start substituting the real Christ who calls us into uh, a relationship that has a cost. And we start substituting Him for other things. We come up with hollow religion or we come up with false representations of God's power in our life. We start making things out to be what they're not really so that we feel better about not following the one who calls us to hard places. In the same way that many would flock to an illusionist to be impressed by his talents, but they would never commit their lives to being his apprentice or being his servant, so do many come after Christ. And they fall short because they will not be His disciples. 
I say this, and I know that sounds, I know that can sound kind of hard, I know that can sound kind of edgy, so I want to say this. Um, I'm saying this to anyone who hears this message, and I guarantee you I say it with nothing but love and mercy and real concern, and this is why. I myself know how easy it is to settle for less than what Christ is calling us to. I think all of us know how easy. Anybody that really is serious about their faith and you look at your life, it's got to be glaringly obvious how easy it is to not always count the cost and pay the cost that Christ is calling us to pay. It's so easy, especially in the American church. It's so easy to believe that we don't have to be a disciple to truly be a Christian. Kyle, I've even had, I've had pastors look me in the eye and say, you don't have to be a disciple to really be a Christian. You can imagine the, the facial expression. <laughs> We, we all laugh about Tony's face sometimes. It'd be preaching. Somebody be preaching or whatever you want to call it. And he'd be like, with his Bible out, glasses down here. And all the rest of us are like, yeah, what he did. Yeah, that's what Because <laughs> I just can't match. Even I can't match that face. That's the one he's got in the bag. It just nails it every time. <laughs> but let's be honest. It, it really, I mean, we're laughing about that, but I'm not saying that from a high horse. It's so easy. In fact, I'll guarantee you, probably most of my life, if I would have never said that, that's really what I felt. I think probably a lot of us grew up thinking that too if we were in the church. It's easy to believe that. It's easy to feel that way. You know why? Because everything in our lives is so easy here. Everything is so easy. Think about it. I mean... None of us in this generation, unless you just want to, really have to get up and milk cows and feed chickens in the morning. I mean, I used to feed chickens because my mama made me, but that's because we had 80,000 chickens. It's not like you did that and then you went to your real job that was your job. Right, Joe? You don't get up and go out and milk the cows before you go to the golf course. It, it, just, it just doesn't work that way. James sure don't do it. All right? Everything's easy. So why wouldn't being a Christian be easy? I mean, God loves me, right? Why would God want my life to be harder than my boss wants it to be? And that's our way of thinking. So I don't say this with any, any condescension to you. I say this as one convicted like I hope we all will be when we get done with this. Um, it's easy to think that way. Many tend to feel that you can be an average Christian... Just an average Christian with a life that looks basically the same as everybody else's life around you except for some schedule of normal church attendance. That's one option. Or you can take, I guess, the bonus package. Kyle, you can be a real disciple of Christ and that just means that you're a super Christian. You're some kind of super radical Almost like, I don't want to say terrorist, but you know, along that kind of line. You know, some kind of like juggernaut Christian if you're a disciple. And everybody else is just a Christian, but if you're a disciple, you are one of those elite platinum members. You go, when we get to, you know, whenever we get to heaven, they're going to like come over the loudspeaker and say, Attention all platinum Christians, you get to come straight to the front of the line on our express entry at the pearly gates. Everybody thinks that's kind of what's going to happen. No, that's not true. Maybe funny, but it's not true. In the New Testament, the terms Christian and disciple are always synonymous. In fact, if you look at Acts eleven twenty six, it says, "And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians." These are the same people. It's not two different groups. It's not the mediocre believers were called Christians and the super believers are called disciples. No, it's just if you're a believer, you're a disciple. That's it. In just about every reference in the New Testament to Christians, it always refers to one of two things. It either refers to the disciples of Christ or it refers to false Christians. There's no in-between. Every reference is you're either a real disciple or you're just pretending. But there's no, well, you're a Christian, but you're not quite this. There's, there's none of that. There's no in-between. And I say this for two reasons. First of all, Jesus deserves for His people to be the disciples that He's called them to be. And secondly, we need everything that He has called us to be. 
We need to be disciples. What I'm saying to you tonight is this, and I don't care how long you've been a believer, we need to hear this. We need to be legitimate disciples. It's a gift to us. If we settle for less, we're going to be very devastated when this is all said and done. My goal tonight is not to bruise anyone or to bring any unjustified doubt. My goal is that, number one, Jesus would be pleased with every life, including my own, and that everyone here in this message will be drawn to the life that Jesus died and rose again to give them. That's the goal. So, if we're not pursuing discipleship, then we've settled for less than true Christianity. I know that, I know that seems like a hard line, but that's a biblical line. If we're not pursuing discipleship, we're not pursuing Christianity. They are one and the same. I, I do not think that any of us in here really want to be pursuing something less than true Christianity. You know, we're the, we're the Sunday night crowd. We're here because we're the core group of the church. In America, unfortunately, this, if you're there on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, that means you are the super believer in your church community. I don't think any of us want to be less than true Christians or Christians in name only. Nominal Christians will not persevere in the faith when the cost is high and the road is hard. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We would all like to be the latter, would we not? We would all like to persevere and be saved. Nominal Christians won't do that. Nominal Christians can be impressed with Jesus' power, but only those joined to Him in His very body will partake of His sufferings and also share in His life and glory. We know biblically that we are God's children and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Those that will be glorified with Christ are those that are going to suffer with Christ. Nominal Christians will have neither. Nominal Christians will not bring glory to God or bear fruit. But Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Nominal Christians will not experience the love and joy that Jesus promises only to his disciples. Now follow me on this. Again, in John 15, Jesus tells us that if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. And we just saw that the only ones who will bear fruit are disciples. Therefore, only disciples abide in Jesus. So what does it mean to abide in Jesus and thereby be a disciple? Well, Jesus says in John 15, 10 through 11, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What does that mean to all of us? That means that to abide in Jesus means to abide in His love. So we ask the question, how do we do this? The answer is we do it by allowing Him to disciple us as we obey His commandments. And then we ask, what is the reward? Well, He promises, again, that we will abide in His love and that our joy will be full. Disciples get all these things. Nominal Christians do not. God deserves that we glorify Him. He offers us uh, a life and eternity of living saturated in His love and the fullness of His joy. Jesus died and rose again so that we might be resurrected to life and share in His glory for eternity with Him. And the only way that this happens in our lives is if we persevere in the faith and if we prove to be His disciples by obeying His commandments and bearing much fruit. I, who is just as prone to fall short as anyone else, want to encourage you tonight to not fall short of striving to be a disciple of Jesus. The call to do so is not a call to radical Christianity. It's just a call to real Christianity. That's the whole point. And I'm not trying to beat a dead horse. I'm just trying to stir your heart and your mind to start saying, wait a minute, this is really something I need to focus on. This is really something I need to think about. This is really something that matters and will always matter in my life. Because if we fall short of this, we fall short of everything that we claim to care about. If I'm not a disciple of Christ, I don't know Christ. That's as plain as I can put it. So having said all that, what does this call to discipleship really look like? Practically, what does it look like for us? 
in this room. We see in Matthew 8, verse 19, it says, And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, some believe that we can come to Christ and then live the same kind of life as we did before. But it stands out to me that even this scribe was, you know, he understood that being associated with Jesus in any meaningful way meant that you had to follow him. It meant that something had to change. The scribe said, I will follow you. And it's true that he said this calling Jesus teacher, but that may not be as condemning in and of itself as some would suggest. I think sometimes when we start studying the word, I think we get really quick to um, start noticing the way people would address Christ sometimes and the way people would relate to Christ sometimes. And a lot of times that's very valid. There's a lot of times where people address Jesus as anything other than Lord and it was very obvious that they saw him as less than what he was. But I want to try to give this guy a little bit of the benefit of the doubt right here. Maybe unjustly, maybe not. Maybe I shouldn't, but the end result's going to be the same as far as we're talking about tonight. Um, this scribe was most likely a very learned man. He was well-educated. And he prided himself, like all scribes did at that time, on knowing more than everybody else. Scribes were the guys that when they walked into the room, they were all the PhDs. Okay, they were all today in today's world, they'd all be Dr. So-and-so. Okay, they got like, you know, 50 books published, you know, a lot of them, maybe only their mama bought them, but they published a lot of books, you know. And when they walk into a room, they feel like they know more than everybody else. And that's really what mattered to them. And that really was a core uh, or a central part of who they were. So in that context, for him to address Jesus as teacher was a recognition of superiority in an area of life that truly defined him. That might have been a much more weighty, weighty statement than we would at first glance think it to be. Um, also, this man is making this statement to Jesus, I will follow you, especially in front of others. This would be more of a commitment than we might think it to be. Um, this man was publicly separating himself from his peers in order to follow the man that these other scribes would prove out to oppose throughout the entirety of the Gospels. He's saying, I will follow you to the man that they would continually disagree with. But even though he did this, even though he comes to him and he calls him teacher, when to him... He might have seen himself as the teacher. The teacher is calling this man teacher. Even though he's publicly identifying with Jesus in the face of his own peers, and that probably would not have been popular, it definitely would not have later chosen to be popular. I got a feeling it wasn't popular right then because what were the people saying right after the Sermon on the Mount? He speaks with power and not like our scribes, not like our teachers. That probably got under the saddle of a lot of these guys. Even though he had done this, Jesus apparently knew that he had not fully considered the cost of discipleship. There is a cost in being Jesus' disciple. Jesus makes it plain when he says uh, in John 15, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus, make, Jesus makes it plain that to follow him is going to be costly. The cost means that we uh, be willing to give up everything. And I say we'd be willing because when we first come to Christ, we'll talk about this again in a minute, but when we first come to Christ, we don't have a clue exactly what it's going to cost us, right? We don't know. Albert, when you came to Christ, you didn't know that Jesus was going to call you to maybe be a missionary one day in Uganda. He may do that, but you didn't know it on the first day, did you? No, you're still waiting on that message. Lucas is hoping it don't come. We don't know. But just like this scribe might have been willing to give up his relationship with his peers, I might also be willing to give up some of my relationships when I come to Christ. I might be willing to give up, say, my golfing buddies who curse a lot and drink on the back nine as long as I get to keep my golf. Right? Joe, calm down. It's okay. Calm down. Joe just leaned over and said something to somebody. It's okay. I mean, think about it. I can get new golf buddies, right? 
I can get new golf buddies who go to church and maybe they have a I Heart Jesus bumper sticker on their golf cart and they still play golf every Saturday and everything's all good. The truth is that Jesus may call me to live the kind of life that doesn't afford me a weekly golf game or maybe no hobby at all. There's a lot of us in this room that don't have a hobby, a consistent hobby at all. And I believe it's because of what God has called us to take on and do so many times in our lives. It's easy to say that we'll follow Jesus when we dictate the terms of the relationship. That's the point. If Jesus will be only a miracle worker or a teacher of high-minded things or only a Savior, then we're not going to follow Jesus where He's truly going to lead us. Jesus will always lead us on a path where the benefits seem to have disappeared, at least for a time, and the cost seems to be very great. Jesus makes this clear in His response to the scribe in verse 20. Now, it's possible that this scribe might have been the kind of man that we typically envision the scribes of Jesus' day to be. These men would have wanted to be respected and highly sought-after teachers. A lot of these scribes um, kind of went from synagogue to synagogue, teaching in town after town. A lot of times they might be invited. If they were popular at the time, they might be invited to different synagogues to go teach. And that's kind of the life a lot of of them would have wanted to live, maybe this man saw Jesus as his ticket to that lifestyle. Again, if we reference the other synaptic, excuse me, synoptic Gospels, um, we see that Jesus told the disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee so that he could visit and preach to the other cities of that region. This man probably knew this. He was there, apparently. And he may have thought that if he could associate himself with Jesus, this great miracle worker, this great popular teacher, who is surely going to be invited into every synagogue and every town that he goes into, now that word has gotten out, then he also could make the synagogue circuit and separate himself from his peers for his own benefit. That could have been what he was thinking. Jesus' response shoots down all ideas of any earthly grandeur whatsoever. It says, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, biblically speaking, foxes and birds are generally viewed as pretty lowly beings, right? Not a sparrow falls to the ground without your father knowing it, and you are worth more than many sparrows. Okay? Um... They're pretty lowly beings. However, Jesus, as he would go around and preach and fulfill his earthly ministry, he had fewer possessions and seemingly less financial stability than even these animals. Think about that a minute. He admittedly had less financial stability than a fox or a bird. Foxes and birds have homes. Jesus was homeless. If you even look back throughout uh, the catalog of prophets and great men of God before Christ, all throughout the Old Testament, other prophets in Scripture who would do far less had way more than Jesus did. Elisha had a room in the Shunammites' house. Moses and the patriarchs, they had tents that they could stay in. But the one who had created the entire world had no place to call his own. Suppose this man was giving up his current lifestyle so that he could find a better one following Jesus. Can you only imagine his surprise when Jesus said to him, basically, sure, follow me. But you remember, I myself am homeless. And if you do follow, you may be too. That kind of takes all the appeal out of following Christ for this guy, doesn't it? Can you imagine? This guy's thinking, man, he's a miracle worker. He's a great teacher. He is the buzzword around the northern end of the region. And he's going to be hes going to be famous all over Israel within a week. And if I attach myself to him, then I'm going to have a lot of doors open. And I can do this too. Yes, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll go wherever you want me to go. And Jesus said, yeah, that's great. I'm a homeless guy, though. And if I, who am the center of attraction, is homeless, what do you think you're going to be? Puts everything in perspective. Not only was Jesus homeless, but I think it bears mention, he was also shunned a lot. Jesus, I think, was saying more in that foxes and birds reference than just, I don't have a place to sleep every night consistently. The fox can go home to her den of pups every night. 
the bird can fly home, fly, fly to her nest full of chicks every afternoon. Jesus didn't have any of that. I mean, let me ask a question. Where could Jesus consistently go where he was so embraced and so understood? Where could he consistently go where he was as embraced and understood as most, if not all of us, are every single night when we get home with our families? Even in his hometown of Nazareth, they tried to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. For at least part of his earthly ministry, we see in Scripture that his own family, including his own mother and brothers, thought that he had lost his mind. How many of us would be willing to follow if it meant such a lonely lifestyle? I can, I can tell you from my very limited experience, I have, I've tasted it often. And I'm nobody special. There's a lot of times where, you know, I've talked with Tony and Kyle and a few others. There's a lot of times I'm one of the most loved people probably in the world just by some of the people in this room. Hopefully all of you in the room. Don't raise your hand if you're not. But there's a lot of times I can meet a room full of friends and family and feel totally alone. And I'm sure a lot of you probably felt the same way at some point in time. I can only imagine the loneliness that truly great men and women of God have felt. The Charles Spurgeons, the William Tyndales, guys like that, William Carey. If you will follow Jesus and submit to his way of thinking and stand for what he stands for, there will be many times that not only among strangers, but even in a crowd of friends and family, you too will feel totally alone. That is part of the cost of discipleship. Jesus, as the Son of God, gave up more than we can or will. He left heaven to come to earth. He gave up being the one who is sacrificed to in order to become the sacrifice. And if we're his followers, we've got to be prepared to pay the cost in the same way by giving up all ambition and all control and possibly all that matters to us. Then verse 21 says, Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, perhaps this was one of the twelve disciples, and as Matthew recorded this, he chose to leave him anonymous. We don't know. But in any case, this man, unlike the scribe, was already considered to be one of Jesus' disciples. However, even though he acknowledged Jesus as Lord and was one of his disciples, he still needed further instruction about the cost of following Christ. Now, in one sense, I don't want to breeze over this. In one sense, I think that's truly refreshing. I think that I think we need to latch on to that for just a minute. Because if you look at your life tonight and you see that you're not measuring up to be the disciple that you should be, you're not alone. Biblically, you're not alone. Practically, in this room, you're not alone. Worldwide, you're not alone. And you have a Lord who is willing to continue to lead you and see you grow. We can't ever forget that. Because if we start looking at our lives and saying, well, I'm not what I should be, and that's where we stop, we're always going to be crushed. We're always going to be in despair. We're never going to grow because none of us are what we should be. But we have a Lord who has dedicated himself to us into making us what we should be. And that's, what, that's part of what makes us a disciple. When we see that we're not what we should be, we respond the right way. We don't give up. We don't leave the path. We don't throw in the towel. We don't go off and find some cheap substitute for Christ and what He really calls us to. We repent and we persevere. We keep pressing forward. We say, yes, Lord, I'm not what I should be. Show me. And we surrender to what He says. This disciple wasn't all that he should be either. I think when we first come to Christ, I think we count the cost in a general sense. Um, we may have said something like, you know, Lord, if you'll just save me. I know that's how it was when I came to Christ. I was just, Lord, if you will just save me. I'll, I wasn't making bargains with God. I was just saying, whatever, here is a blank contract. Whatever you want, fill it in as we go. Just save me. And some of us, Probably all of us, some of you came to Christ in about the same way. Maybe a violent fit. Lord, if you'll just save me, you can have all of me. 
And we may have been genuine. But as we follow where he leads, the path continues to challenge that commitment, doesn't it? Doesn't it continually challenge that commitment saying, Lord, you can have all of me? It calls us to give up things that we did not realize would be required of us. Amen? If you've been walking with Christ a long time, has God along the way ever called you to give up something that you had no clue He would call you to give up when you first started out with Him? Okay. Me and two others. Okay, good. Rest of you need to start walking. Yeah, it, no, it, He does that. I mean, daily He calls us to give up things. And if you're like me, there's a lot of times I look at Him like, really, that? That's That's something? These will often be things that don't seem overtly bad or worldly. This was the case with this disciple. If you look at it, he said to Jesus, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Now, to clarify, that doesn't mean this guy's dad had just died. This was a common saying, especially with the Jewish crowd at that point in time. But what this phrase basically meant was is that this guy wanted to wait until he had received his inheritance, and then he would go wherever Jesus wanted him to go. Lord, let me get the money that my parents are going to leave me, and then I'm with you. Now, an inheritance is not a bad thing. An inheritance is a perfectly good thing. In fact, we're commanded in Scripture to try to leave an inheritance for our descendants. In Proverbs 13.22, it says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Not just to your children, but to your grandchildren. But the merit of an inheritance was not really the issue here. We see in verse 22, And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What he was saying was this, We who are spiritually alive should focus on Jesus and the things that pertain to life always. And we should leave those who are spiritually dead in this world to deal with the things of this world which will also pass away. Let dead let spiritually dead people deal with the dead things of this world. We who are alive have things that pertain to life that we should worry about. Or another way to say it would be this. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jesus gave up everything, like we said, to obey his Father's will and to save us. He left heaven. He put on human flesh so that he could be made one flesh with his bride, the church. He lived the perfect life for us and received his Father's stamp of approval in multiple ways. He, he received it orally in Matthew chapter 3 at his baptism from the sky. He received it on the Mount of Transfiguration. He received it by the power of the Holy Spirit working in him to do all that Isaiah had said the Messiah would do, as Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do all these things that were prophesied about, including the miracles that he would work and the preaching of the gospel. He did all these things. He then died as a sacrifice, absorbing all the hell that your sin and my sin has earned for us. He took full responsibility for our sin, literally, as if he had committed every wicked act that we have ever and will ever commit. He died our death and then he gave the greatest proof that his sacrifice is good enough to save us by rising again from the dead and ascending back to the right hand of the Father. If living a pleasing life to God in this fashion was so costly to Jesus, we can't be surprised when it cost us as well. If Jesus gave up things that were perfectly good and right, why would we ever think that he wouldn't call us to give up things that are perfectly good and right in and of themselves? He gave up heaven. Is there anything wrong with heaven? No. They still gave it up. And we're going to have to do the same. Not give up heaven. We don't have heaven until he gives it to us. But give up things that may be good in and of themselves. I think the hardest thing about the cost of discipleship is not that following Jesus cost us our sinful habits. It's a blessing that following Jesus cost us our sinful habits. When we really see our sin for what it is, and we see what it cost us, and we see how it has ruined our lives, how it's cost us so many good things in our lives, when we see exactly how it has broken the heart of God, how it has condemned us under the wrath of God, when we see everything about our sin for the poison that it really is, giving up our sinful habits and being set free from the slavery to it is not... A hardship. It's a gift. 
The things that Jesus gave up, like we said, were not bad things. He knew no sin. He gave up heaven. He gave up the throne. He gave up uh, being in the presence of the Father. The things He surrendered were not bad, but surrendering them was still necessary. And one of the hardest parts of discipleship is that it demands that we give up things that are in and of themselves good things. For instance, we all want to be liked and well thought of, don't we? Everybody wants everybody else to think well of them. And if we ever think that somebody, well, most of us, if we ever think that somebody doesn't think well of us, that grates on us, doesn't it? That bothers us. We'll lose sleep over that. We'll end up popping tums by the end of the week because we have indigestion over that. Right? And we know that a good name is truly valuable. In Proverbs 22.1 it says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. But still Jesus tells his disciples, Woe unto you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If we're disciples of Christ, it's going to cost us our good name in a worldly sense. If we're true disciples of Christ, people will hate us. They just will. Why? Because the world cannot love us because we're not of the world. Family is a blessing from God. The Bible says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And Jesus lets us know that following Him may cost us these blessings. Of anyone who would take a stand for his name, Jesus says in Luke 12, they will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The name of Christ will divide families in some contexts and in some places. Following Christ may cost us even the human relationships that we value the most. Provision is a good thing. And it's kind of necessary, especially around here because we like to eat. I was talking with a guy on the phone the other day. He was from Nashville, and he asked what kind of church I went to. And I said, Baptist. He said, oh, y'all like chicken. I said, okay, there's that. Apparently somewhere in the Bible it says all Baptists love fried chicken. Yeah. Now, provision's a good thing, and it's, it's necessary for survival, and we're supposed to provide for our families. 1 Timothy 5.8 tells us, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We shouldn't be lazy. We and our families need provision, and God knows that, and God has ordained that, and God provides that. And Jesus still tells his disciples, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall you eat and what shall we drink or what shall we wear? If living the life of a disciple of Jesus is so costly, here's the question. How can we ever do it? How can we really do this? How can we keep denying ourselves not only the blatantly sinful things of this world, but also, when necessary, the things that don't seem to be bad things in order to take up our cross and follow after Jesus? How can we do this day after day after day? How can we do this when we feel good about life? And how can we do it when we don't feel so good about things? How can we do it when we feel like everything's crashing down around us already and we think, God, have you got to take this away too? This one comfort, this one, you know, this one little thing that gives me peace here. How can, why do you have to take that away too? How can we let go of those things and follow him on the path of discipleship? We can do so by trusting Jesus and following his simple directions. Again, he said to the disciple in verse 22, he said, follow me. That's all he said, follow me. That sounds simple enough, doesn't it? Follow me. What does that mean? You know, there's been times where, you know, I felt like God was probably calling me to give up some things in my life that weren't necessarily bad things. There just wasn't place for them in my life anymore. And follow me didn't really explain exactly what my motivation ought to be and exactly how I ought to go about things, right? I know it's true. I just don't know what it looks like. I think it means that we only follow where Jesus leads... Or excuse me, we not only follow where Jesus leads, but we also imitate the way that he walks the path. Or as Paul said it, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We're called to be imitators of Christ. 
Another way of saying this would be to say that we should always be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As Christians, we love Jesus. That's what makes us us. What is a Christian? Someone who loves Christ. This means that when things are hard or confusing, we trust Him. And we trust that His ways are best. I don't have to understand why He tells me to do what He tells me to do. I don't have to see the end result clearly. I just trust Him. I don't have to feel all that great about it. I just trust Him. That's deciding to love Him. That's what we do. We trust Him when it's hard. We trust Him when it's confusing. We trust that His ways are always best. And if He took the hard path, we trust this path. And we trust His reasoning for walking this path. He took the path of sacrifice. Why? For the joy that was set before Him. And it paid off. We saw there that He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, we deny ourselves the joy of good things now, trusting that He is calling us to a greater joy and better things later. When following Jesus and declaring His name with my life means that, yes, people will despise me and reject me and despise you and reject you now, Jesus promises a greater honor later. And that's what we focus on. He said, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. If I lose the acknowledgement of people in this life now, i got a feeling that's going to pale when I stand in the courtroom or the, 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 the presence of God Almighty and Jesus says, this is part of me. This is part of my body. This is mine. Well done, good and faithful servant. At that moment, Kyle, I don't think it matters one iota what anybody said, good or bad, about me at that point. I don't think I'm really going to remember. And that's what we focus on. When following Jesus looks like it may cost me my friends or cost me my family now. And maybe even in the context that Jesus was talking about, there's surely people over the world now that it won't just cost them their family. It means that their families will be the ones that are turning them into the authorities to be beheaded or to be thrown out of the town or to be beaten publicly or be disowned. In that context, in that moment, Jesus promises a greater joy and a greater family and a greater life. He says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. We focus on the joy set before us. And when being a disciple of Jesus seems to cost me and my family our provision. Maybe it means, you know, there have been Christians in America that have lost their business because they would not yield to the world and they would not deny the name of Christ. There uh, have been some of us maybe in this room whose own jobs have been threatened because we would not yield to the world and would not deny the name of Christ. Rather than worrying about that, Jesus tells us how to have more than we could ever imagine. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. What things? What you shall eat, what you shall drink, what you shall wear. All those things and so much more. Jesus loves you more than anyone has ever loved you. He's given up more to ensure your safety and joy than anyone else ever has or ever will. Jesus is more concerned about your salvation and about you receiving the full blessing that he bought and paid for in his blood than you are or that I am. The cost of discipleship may appear high and it appears high because it is high. We're not... We're not saying that the cost of discipleship is not really high. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's high. Yes, it's hard. Still, it's what Jesus deserves. It is the path that we need. And it's the only way to have a joy greater than anything that this world can promise. And Jesus is calling all of us in this room today, everyone who calls upon the name of Christ, everyone who professes to be a follower of Christ, he's calling us all today, maybe for the first time, maybe for the one millionth time. He's calling us to a place of deeper commitment and greater abandon toward him. So I just want to close with the exhortation that I believe Christ has given all of his disciples when he first calls them. 
And He still gives when they see that they're falling short of walking the path the way they should. And even like Peter, when they seem to have denied Him and lost all hope of ever being with Him, He gives the same exhortation every time to those whom He loves, those whom He has died and rose again to save. He says this simply, in every situation in life, He says, follow Me. So I say follow Him. Amen? Father, I just love you and I thank you so much for tonight. I, I know that this may seem rough. I know that this may seem uh, not what it should be, God. But, uh, Father, I, I did my best this week. I did my best tonight. And I just pray that, that you forgive me for falling short in delivering it if I have, Father God. But please protect all of us from falling short and in, in acting it out. Father, nobody's relationship with you here, including my own, was ever dependent on our choice or on our human exertion. And nobody uh, in, in the sound of my voice, Father God, is dependent on me to be a good preacher, for us to be stirred to be good disciples, and for us to strive to be good disciples, and for us to seek a way to be a better disciple. Jesus, I just want to tell you right now, I know that you deserve better than what I'm giving you. I know that you deserve better than probably what most of us are giving you. I can't speak for everybody, Lord. You know the hearts of every person. But I'm just asking you right now, please be merciful to us. We're your body. We love you. We want to be better for you. We want to be beautiful for you. We want to be the body that you deserve. We want to, you're our head. You deserve for your body to respond exactly the way that you command your body to respond. If I told my left hand to do something and they were and it was lazy in doing it, I'd, I'd know there was a real problem. I'd be irritated with my left hand. I'd be going to a doctor. I'd be looking to fix that problem, Lord. And I feel like that's what I do so often. I feel like that's probably what a lot of us do. You tell us to do things and, and we lag or we decide not to respond at all or we, we halfway do it or we do it clumsily. Lord, I, I'm asking you to please give us a new sincerity, a new passion. To seek you with all of our hearts. God, we need it. The world around us needs it. And you deserve it. Holy Spirit, please fall upon us. And bring us to the point of, of making this a focus in our lives again. Maybe it was a focus a long time ago. Maybe we drifted away from that, Father. Help us get our focus back on being the disciples of Christ that he deserves for us to be. And nothing else. I pray that everything in our lives would fall under that banner of being a disciple of Christ. If we can't make it fit easily, we cram it under there. Or we get rid of it completely. Father, please forgive us. Please give us repentance where we need it, Father. And I pray that you'll make us the people that you deserve for us to be. And I pray that you'll be honored and glorified by our lives, Lord. We love you and we praise you. Please give our church vision and guidance and wisdom. There's so many things this year that we know that you want us to do. There's so many things that, uh, that we don't know that I'm sure you have in store for us to do. God, give us, give us hearts that line up with your heart. Give us minds that line up with the mind of Christ. Lord, give us uh, wisdom, and I pray that you give us all the resources that we need to do everything you want us to do this year, Father God. Please make, it, make us to be fruitful. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.